So uh, Nixon, I was sitting, my wife uh, was sitting in the lounge a couple of weeks ago, and Nixon got a message on her phone that said, uh, hail is on the way, move your cars under cover, which is a little bit of a problem for us. We don't have any cover to move our cars. So it's a bit of a useless message. Uh, thankfully, the hail never arrived. But uh, what happens is that insurance companies have done a cost-benefit analysis, and they've worked out it's cheaper for them to send a, a million SMSs in case hail is coming, than to fix a thousand cars. It's cheaper for them to do that, right? Um, companies identify the, and, and we do this ourselves also, we identify the need, if, if something is tragic is going to happen, something big and catastrophic, we want to do what we can to avoid that, anything that we can, right? That, that's why Discovery pays half of your gym membership fees, because they'd rather pay half your gym membership fees than your whole hospital bill. They'd rather do that, right? It's a cost-benefit analysis. If we can have the information, there's a tragedy coming, there's something big and catastrophic coming, we want to have the knowledge that it is coming, and then we want to know what to do about it. There's hail coming, put your car under cover. That's the best news we can get. The best news. That's the good news. Actually, it's the good news of the gospel. That is the good news of the gospel. And last week, we started a series called Resilience, looking at the end of the world. And again, I know that as soon as I say the words end of the world, there's some people who picture a zombie apocalypse. There's other people who picture a bunker filled with baked beans and rooibos and cockroaches. And some people think it's, some people would, would think it's scare tactics or fiction, something that's not going to take place. I get all of that. And I'm, I'm not here today to convince you of something that you don't believe. But I'm here today to say, can we read our Bibles together? Can we look at the signs of the times together? And then can we arrive, can you arrive, not can we arrive, can you arrive at a conviction? And then when you've got a conviction, act with faith on that conviction. So if you're convicted that this is not the end of times, that's fine. Act with faith on that conviction. But if you're convicted that it is, then you need to act with faith on that conviction. And so I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to tell you what your conviction must be. You need to find a conviction with, by faith through the scriptures by looking at the times and then act, act upon it. That's all, that's all we're trying to do today. So last week we spoke about some of the signs of the times and some of the preparation that we need to do. We said some of the signs of the times out of Matthew 24, out of Matthew 10. So firstly, Jesus says, what, his disciples said to him, what must take place? And he says, all must hear. Everybody needs to have the gospel preached to them. And we know that's worst case scenario. The projections are saying by the middle of next year as a worst case scenario, there will be no more unreached people groups in the world. Every single person, every single person would have had, every single people group would have had access to the gospel by the end of next year, uh, by the middle of next year, as a worst case scenario. Again, that's not the only sign, but it's quite a big, it's quite a big marker. We said that labor pains will increase, and as you get closer from, from the onset of labor, as the birth gets closer, your labor pains get uh, more frequent and more intense, so I'm told. You get more frequent and more intense. And so since the beginning, since Jesus' days, wars, rumors of wars, floods, earthquakes, pandemics, since then. But as uh, Jesus says, that's the beginning of birth pains. As the birth nears closer, that they get more frequent and more intense. And so that the period between them is shorter. Jesus says, you will be hated. You will increasingly be hated because of me. We live in a society that wants to tell us and wants us to acknowledge that the individual is the center around which everything revolves. And as Christians, we get hated by the world because we say 
the individual is not the center around which everything revolves. Jesus is. I want to say resolves every time there, but it's revolves. Last week we said that one of the preparations that we need to make is that we need to increase in love. So before Jesus says to his disciples, you will be increasingly hated, before he says that, he says to them, you need to love your enemies and you need to bless those who curse you. And then he says, by the way, uh, you will be increasingly hated. What he's saying is, you need to be increasingly loving. And so as we near the end of the times, that's a sign. The preparation is, as Christians, as people who follow Jesus, him as the center of our lives, not ourselves, we should be increasingly loving those who increasingly hate us. We should be increasingly blessing those who increasingly curse us. That's, the prep, that's part of the preparation that we need to do. We started looking about, at what it means to have resilient faith. Statistics will tell us that 10% of Christians under the age of 30 have resilient faith. 10% of Christians under the age of 30 attend church at least monthly and they engage with their church more than just attending a worship service. They trust firmly in the authority of the Bible. They're committed to Jesus personally and they express a desire to transform the broader society as an outcome of their faith. 10% of Christians have resilient faith. The first step to resilient faith is to stand firm. Matthew 10, 22, Jesus says, the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And standing firm isn't about trying harder and doing more. It's about abiding in Jesus, about remaining in his love. I love that last week, um, before, before I preached, before I stood up to preach, before, we, before anybody else knew what we were preaching on, we had a lady stand up in the middle of our worship service and say, we've gone through in the last three years, cancer, double mastectomies, addiction, multiple heart attacks, job losses. And through that all, we have stood firm. We've lost a lot, but we haven't lost our faith. God gave us a picture of resilient faith before we started speaking on resilient, before we started speaking on resilient faith. This is not the end. I'm not saying it's the end for them, but they've stood firm. Today I want to look at another sign of the times, and then I want to dig a a little bit deeper into what it looks like to have resilient faith. So it's all good and well to say, yes, okay, we, need, we understand we need to have resilient faith, but how do we do that? What does it look like and how do we do that? So another sign of the times. What else must happen before the end comes? It's a great falling away. Jesus says in Matthew 24, verse 10, At that time, many will turn away from the faith. Many will turn away from the faith. They'll betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. There's a lot of many's there. Many will fall from the faith. Many false prophets will come and they'll deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. What has happened to people's faith uh, during and after COVID wasn't caused by COVID. See, crisis is a revealer. Crisis reveals what happens, what was already happening under the surface of most people's faith. So in, in the still waters of uh, calm and, and uh, peaceful times, it's very easy for things to lurk just under the surface. But when the turbulent waters of, of, uh, of tragedies and, and trials and uh, crisis hit, it reveals the rocks that are under the surface. It reveals the sticks and the snares that are just just beneath the surface. And so COVID has revealed that. It didn't cause that in people's faith. So uh, people looking at other people, uh, perhaps their own faith or other, other people's faith, falling away in this time. And we attribute it to COVID. That's because of COVID. I, lost my, I left my church and it's because, of, no friends, it wasn't the cause. 
All it did was reveal what was already there. Have you looked at the state of your own faith over the last little while and thought, what has happened? I thought my faith was stronger than this. Have you looked at others and thought, I thought that the faith of some of the Christians that I went to church with was stronger than this? Have you looked at that recently? Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, he says, Let no one deceive you, but th that day will not come unless the falling away happens first. That day will not come unless the falling away happens first. The Greek word that's translated as falling away here is the word apostasia. It means apostasy means departing or divorce. This isn't a time when people will go around saying, declaring, I hate God, I hate Jesus. We're not going to be having uh, Jesus must fall marches going down Broadway. That's not what it looks like. But what we will see is what we're currently seeing. People turning away from God in great numbers. The great falling away. It used to be a small occurrence. There was a famous preacher here and a big name worship leader there. And then there was a friend that you used to be in life group with. And then it was two friends that you used to know in the church who suddenly disappeared. Many of these people didn't announce that they were atheist or agnostic or Muslim. They simply just departed. They simply just abandoned their faith. They fell away. The word abandoned gives us the image of a person picking up a water bottle and carrying it with them on the hike and then deciding that the water bottle is a burden. It's, it's heavy. It's something that they're getting tired in the hike and so the water bottle is, they don't want, it's, it's heavy. You don't want to carry it anymore. And so you put it down and you don't leave it where you left it. You walk a little way with it and then it becomes heavy. And so you put it down and you walk away from it. You abandon it where you left it. And the, the problem is that the hike that we're going on is a hike through the desert. And people have abandoned their water bottles because they're too heavy to carry. Giving up your faith is like abandoning a water bottle in a desert because it's too heavy to carry. It's like walking through the desert and your, your tired legs become, begin to throb with pain. And so you think to, to deal with this pain, I need to cut off my legs because they're the cause of my pain. If I could just cut off my throbbing, sore, painful legs walking through this desert, then I wouldn't be in any more pain. Friends, I don't want to in any way minimize disappointments and hurt and heartache. I know that many people abandon their faith because of some of these things. My only point is that abandonment isn't a way to minimize the pain. It relieves us of the burden of carrying a water bottle, and it also leaves us dying of dehydration in the middle of a desert. God can handle your anger. He can handle your frustration. He can handle your pain. He can even handle your doubt. He can handle your hard questions. He can handle you wrestling with your faith. Abandoning your faith is abandoning your only way, your only hope of getting out of heartache. If you're here today and struggling with your faith, I want to encourage you to speak to somebody. Speak to a life group leader. If you're not in a life group, come and speak to a pastor. And We want to help you to make sense. We want to help you perhaps, we won't have answers to all your questions, but perhaps we can give you a little bit of clarity. Perhaps we can help you on, on your journey of wrestling and understanding. But please, friends, please, don't abandon your faith. You can doubt. You can wrestle. You can question. All of those things, fine. Don't abandon your faith. When Jesus is speaking to his disciples in Matthew 24, and they're talking about some of the signs of the times, in verse 6, he says, these are the signs and this and this and this and this, and then he says, but don't panic. He says, see to it that you're not alarmed. Don't be troubled. Stay calm. The Nacho Libre translation says, take it easy. 
He says to his disciples, take it easy. Stay calm. Remain calm. If you don't know anything else, if you don't have any other information, don't be alarmed. Stay calm. Don't panic. If people go through years and years and years and years of training just to remain calm in the most hectic of situations, soldiers, doctors, paramedics, teachers, policemen, firemen, parents, the most hectic of situations, remain calm. People go through years and years and years of training just to remain calm because Jesus knows that in the, in the most hectic of situations, if you can remain calm, you have a much better chance of making a rational decision, of making a good decision. When you're panicking and losing your head, the beautiful thing about this is that Jesus warns us that it's coming ahead of time. He says, these are the signs. These are, this is going to happen, but don't panic. Take it easy. Nix and I had three boys, and then we were beginning to have the, we're having the talks. Should we have a fourth? Is this it? So are we done? Should we have a fourth or not? And then the church that we were a part of at the time had a lady who was there uh, teaching and prophesying the one night. And um, she looked at me. I was sitting close to the front, and uh, she looked at me and said, do you have children? So I said, yes. She said, do you have twins? So I said, no. God, so she said to me, God says, buy a bigger car because you're going to have twins. So I said, no thanks. <laughs> Everybody had a laugh. It was a big joke. That's the end of it. And we moved on. A couple of months later, we fell pregnant. A month after that, twins. And uh, we thought that having three kids under the age of three, we, we kind of knew what we were doing. This would not really be a problem for us. We, we got this, right? Fast forward to the first night home with twins, and we quickly realized twins can bounce off each other quite easily. So it's between feeding, burping, changing and cleaning, and putting to bed, if there's two of them, they can alternate, <laughs> which means 12 hours solid can just be kids <laughs> very easily, right? And uh, I can remember the f vividly the first night that we came home with twins, and I woke up from something that wasn't sleep, uh, lying on the floor. I don't know what it was, but it wasn't, I know what it wasn't. Lying on the floor of the twins' room, and I looked up at Nix, and she was sitting in the armchair above me. She still had one of the twins with her. She was also not sleeping, but not awake, uh, holding one of the babies. And I looked up at her, and all I can remember saying is, what have we done? <laughs> it's funny. It's, it's funny now, nine years later, right? In that moment, friends, I was gripped. I was gripped by what have we done? This is our life. I don't know, I don't know how we're going to get out of this. What is going on? And you start asking questions. Did we get this wrong? Should I have visited Odogotela a year ago? Should we have been a little bit more careful with our birth control? Have we made a mistake? How, how are we going to get our way out of this? And I sat there and I, and I, was, I, was, I was gripped with, with fear and panic. And then I remembered, hold on, Jesus. These twins were your idea. They weren't ours. We had a little bit to do with it. But they were your idea. You, you, this, this has happened exactly how you said it was going to happen. And then I was filled with courage. Actually, Jesus, because you said this was coming, and because this has happened exactly how you said it was going to happen, I know that you will provide. I know that you will give us grace. I know that I, know that we, I don't have to hustle my way through this. I, don't, I know that I don't have to uh, wonder, geez, am I, are we going to survive? Is my marriage going to survive? Is my, am I going to survive? Yeah. 
I don't have to wonder that, Jesus, because this hasn't caught you by surprise. You said, this will happen. And it happened. And it filled me with courage. See, friends, Jesus knew that we were going to be persecuted and hated. He knew that we were going to be abandoned and accused and hard-pressed and crushed. He knew that we were going to waver in our faith when things got tough and it looked like we were navigating on our own, lost in the desert, thirsty, with sore legs. So he says to them, don't panic. Stay calm. He knew people were going to be abandoning their faith. And we would look around and think, what have we done? How, how have we got ourselves into this mess? Whose fault is this? Have we made a mistake? And he says, take it easy. Stay calm. This must take place. Stand firm. Remain in me. Friends, when we look, we said that what is needed at this time, that's a sign of the time, we said that what we need is resilient faith. Faith that's able to get knocked down, to take a hit, and to still stand firm, to still stand strong at the end. A faith that isn't afraid of questions and interrogations because it's fluid. I'm, I'm happy to be wrong about many of the things that I believe about God. I'm happy to be wrong about them. But, but being wrong about any of them will not cause me to lose my trust in God through Jesus. So what must we do? We said, we said three things last week. We must increase in love as, we, as the world increases in hate. We must stand firm. We must abide in Jesus. And so if we agree that faith, the faith that we want is resilient faith, how do we get there? Jesus is talking with a Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4, and he begins a conversation with her around water. He says to her, uh, he asks her for water, asks her for a drink, and, and she says, how can you, a Jew, ask me a Samaritan, and I'm a, I'm a Samaritan, and I'm a woman, and uh, Jesus says, if you knew the person, if you knew who it was that was asking you for water, you would have actually asked me, and I would have given you living water that you would drink and never thirst again. And in essence, she says, eh, what? And they park a conversation on water, and then they, they speak about culture, and they speak about worship, and they speak about mission and evangelism, and her whole village gets saved. If you fast forward a few chapters later to John chapter 4, it says Jesus, uh, Jesus goes to the Feast of Tabernacles, which is a seven-day feast. And then John says, on the most important day of the feast, on the last day, the pinnacle of the seven days of feasting, Jesus stands up. And uh, one of the rituals as part of this Feast of Tabernacles is something called a water libation, which is a, a, a water offering that's poured out on the altar. So on the first day of this week, the priests would go down to the pool of Siloam and they, would, and they would gather water in a bowl. And then every afternoon, at the end of every day of celebration, they would pour out a water libation, a water offering on the altar every afternoon for the first six days. And on the seventh day, they would empty the rest of the water and also wine on the altar, asking God for his blessing and thanking him for saving them. And Jesus sits for six days at this feast. He watches the water being poured out on the altar, poured out on the altar, poured out on the altar. And on the seventh day, John says, the most important day, the pinnacle of this feast when the priest empties his water and the water in the bowl runs dry, Jesus sees his moment and he stands up. And he says in verse 38 of John chapter 7, He who believes in me, he who adheres to me, who trusts in me, who relies on me, as the scripture said, from his inmost being will flow continual rivers of living water. He waits for the water to run out. And then he says, but if you trust in me, the water that you pour on the altar, the offering that you give, from your inmost being will flow up. It will never run dry. It will be a continual flow coming up, pouring out on the altar. From your inmost being, from the depths of who you are. And John goes on to say that Jesus is speaking about the Holy Spirit who hadn't yet been given. Let me ask you this question. 
When you pray, where do you picture God? When you pray, where do you picture God? Do you picture Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father in heaven? Because that's right, but it's quite far away. Do you picture God standing next to you? Do you picture him working in other people's life who's close to you? Do you picture him standing right in front of you? Because all, all those things are right. Or do you picture him dwelling in your inmost being, in the depths of who you are? See, because if I pray to a God that's close, but outside of me, it's very different. And if I pray to a God who dwells in the depths, in my inmost being, Jesus says, from your inmost being, rivers of living water will flow. I think one of the reasons that so many people don't drink from this water, from the depths of their being, that never lets them thirst again, that never runs dry, is that we don't spend enough time in the depths of our being. Yeah. Some people have never been there. Yeah. See, every human is a deep well, but too many people exist only near the surface of their own existence. Every one of us is a deep well, but too many of us exist at the surface of our own existence. A friend of mine put in a well point at his house a few weeks ago, and so he came to me excited, I'm putting in a well point. So I corrected him, you mean a borehole? And he recorrected me, no, no, a well point. So I said, what's the difference? He said, no, the water table at my house is quite high, and so I don't need to bore down. Uh, I can just put in a well point, which is good news for him, because it's a lot cheaper, it's a lot quicker, and it's a lot easier to put in. He doesn't have to drill very deep. For a borehole, you need to drill a lot deeper. The problem for so many people is that we settle for well-point water that lives in our lives. When Jesus wants us to drill deep, he wants us to tap into a source of water that runs in the depths of our souls and it takes longer to drill down to and it's more costly. But he says, if you drink of this water, you will never run dry and you will never thirst again. So for the purposes of this illustration today, we're going to break the human being into three parts of being. The shallows, the midlands, and the depths. The shallows of our lives is where distraction lives, where we worry about traffic and social media and we worry about our friends' opinions and sports results. That's all we'll say about it. But you get the picture. What we need to understand is that the madness, the instability, and the distraction of this world is designed. It's designed to keep us in the shallows. It's designed to keep us distracted. The shallows are a place where we drink salty, brackish water that never satisfies our thirst. Have you ever taken a sip of salty water? A couple of my friends have, not by their own choice. <laughs> Just because of by virtue of the fact that they're friends with me. So when you drink, when you drink salty water, you're drinking, but you end up more thirsty. You're doing the act of drinking, but you still end up thirsty, in fact, more thirsty at the end of the day. Some of you have even checked out in the few minutes that I've been speaking about the shallows. Our thoughts drift and they wonder and squirrel. We live in the shallows of distraction. We need to recognize that this, this is not by chance. This is by a coordinated plan. The enemy has planned for you to stay distracted in the shallows because he wants to keep you constantly drinking salty, brackish water that is not life-giving that leaves you thirsty and actually more dehydrated than when you started. 
Remember we said it's, a lot, it's, it's quicker, it's cheaper, it's easier to, to not dig deep. And so we don't want to deeply invest into our spiritual beings. And so we, we settle for the shallow waters. We only ever exist there. Constant, is there a five-minute version? I don't want to watch the 20-minute version. Can I listen to your sermon on 2x speed so that I don't have to sit through 20 minutes, I can sit through 10? Jesus, would you hurry up? <laughs> Maybe it's me. Maybe it's only me. Jesus, would you hurry up and just give, me, just give me so I can move on to something else? Friends, if we want resilient faith, our spiritual lives have to descend from the shallows of distraction into the Midlands. The Midlands is where our cares and our worries live. This is as deep as most people go. They descend from the shallows, but these scary things are a little bit deeper, and they don't like it. Have you ever swum in a dam or swam, swimmed? Have you swimmed in a dam? <laughs> See, the shallows is muddy. It's a bit slippy, but it's muddy. That's all right. You can throw mud and have fun. The deep blue is fine. It's clear. The worst part of swimming in a dam is the Midlands. The part getting from the shallows to the deep blue. Why? Because there's things there. There's grass. There's reeds. There's little branches. And, and, and it feels like something's going to reach up and grab your leg. <laughs> gives me the thrills just talking about it, to be honest. So, so you, you walk slowly through the shallows, and in the Midlands, <laughs> swim as fast as you can because you want to get to the deep, clear water where you're not going to be tickled by something. We spend so much time in the Midlands of our spiritual life that we, we get quite easily overwhelmed by our cares and our worries and our fears. Finances, our relationships, our, our deep needs, our anxieties and fears, our children, our businesses, our school, our varsity work. And it feels like as you go, as you descend into the Midlands, that they're all waiting there for you, and they overwhelm you. So we go back to the shallows, to the water that never satisfies and quickly runs out. In 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter says, cast all of your anxieties on Jesus, because he cares for you. He says, give, some other translation says, your, your burdens, your cares, your worries. Peter says, in the midlands of your being, in the midlands of your soul, in that place where the reeds and, and your fears and your cares lurk, in that place, give those cares and those burdens to Jesus because he cares for you. Yeah. So a spiritual practice that I've started about 18 months ago that I found incredibly helpful. I found a quiet spot. I slowed my breathing. I closed my eyes. I leave my phone in another room. I shut out distraction. And I begin to name my worries. I begin to name my burdens, my anxieties, and my fears. And as I name them, I give them to Jesus because he cares for me. Jesus, I give you this person. I give you this situation. Jesus, I give you this relationship. See, in the Midlands, and because that's as deep as most people end up going into the Midlands where their cares and worries live, that's also where self-medication lives. If you want to practice self-care and not self-medication, you need to push through to the depths. But because most people only, the deepest we go is to the Midlands, we end up being a people that practice self-medication and not self-care. And so we become reliant on medication to exist. And there's 50 different types of self-medication, all of which will never satisfy us like self-care in the depths will. It's possible for you to have short-term resilience in the Midlands. 
Some people even manage to stand firm in their faith in the Midlands, never descending any deeper. But what happens is they exist with their faith, and they also exist with all of their anxieties and fears and failures and burdens, and they coexist. Do you wake in the middle of the night? Do you wake in the morning? And it seems like your fears and your burdens are sitting on the bottom of your bed waiting for you to wake so that they can pounce on you like a 350-kilogram gorilla and sit on you and sit on your shoulders and twist their, and sink their twisted claws into your mind and into your heart and begin to wear you down hour by hour, day after day, year after year. I know those type of burdens. Jesus knows those type of burdens. I've sat underneath them. I still sometimes do. When I quiet myself for a few moments out of the distraction of the shallows, that's where those burdens become most evident. They wear on me constantly, but it's in the Midlands that I'm acutely aware of them. Why don't you just give them to Jesus? I give them to Jesus over and over and over again. Every time I descend into the Midlands of my being, I find the same burden lurking there. I give it to him again. And I don't leave that place until I find a release from it. And as I keep giving it to him, as I keep naming my cares, naming my burdens, I find that over time, they stop lurking in the Midlands of my being. The problem isn't always solved, but the burden's released. The situation hasn't always finished playing out, but the burden is released. I'm no longer burdened by it. I no longer sit under the weight of it. But don't stop there. As you've lingered in the Midlands, as you've given your cares to Jesus, as you've released your fears and anxieties, you need to descend to the depths. Friends, the secret of resilience is tapping deep. But only if you're a follower of Jesus, only if his Holy Spirit is living in you. Otherwise, your, your depths is filled with confusion, disorder, and chaos, the spirit of the age. This isn't a look-within-yourself message. This is a find Jesus in the place where he's living message. California currently has quite a big problem. They are running and about to run out of water. And so they, what they're doing to solve that is they're drilling deep into the ocean floor looking for water. So here's a quick little biology detour. No, not biology. What's this? Natural science. Geography. I don't know. what. School. <laughs> it's school. Sunday school. So, 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 so during, here's what happened. During the Ice Age, massive sheets of ice melted and uh, have formed aquifers deep, in, deep beneath the, the ocean floor that have been sitting there for thousands of years since the last Ice Age. And uh, some of them are deep enough that they begin to get heated by the Earth's core. And so they rise, warm water rises, and so they, they rise and they well up in springs, sometimes on land, and scientists are increasingly finding they actually well up the ocean, on the ocean floor. Because the ocean floor is lower than the land, there is actually the ocean floor is full of freshwater springs and wells. And so the California scientists have said, this is awesome, we will drill and tap deep into the ocean floor into this untapped source of water. What they're finding is as they drill down deeper and deeper, you can't really read that, but that first little aquifer of water there is, our, is where we normally get our drinking and irrigation water from. That, that water is years old. It's been sitting there for years and building up for years, that water table. The second aquifer there has been sitting there for decades. As you drill deeper, that water is decades old. Both of those have run dry in California. So they're now, drip, they're now drilling and tapping into the lowest well, which has been sitting there for thousands of years, and they've celebrated, we've solved the water crisis. So the problem is, for thousands of years, that has underpinned the entire water table. 
that is a finite source of water, it will run dry. When it does, <laughs> we've got a problem. So Jesus says, in your depths, in your inmost being, I will place living water, a well that never runs dry. As you moved through distraction, as you've given your burdens to Jesus, then just begin to love him. Begin to allow him to love you. I've found that the easiest way to descend past your midlands is just to confess your love for Jesus, to confess your need for Jesus. Ask him to show you his love, and then just wait. Linger in the depths. Don't ascend to the midlands of cares or the shallows of distraction. See, in, in, in the shallows in the midlands, it's full of noise. There's a, there's a lot going on. You can hear speedboats, you can hear there's reeds, there's mud, there's, there's a couple of things. But in the depths, it's quiet. I've found sometimes to, to, to linger in the depths, to sit in the depths of my being where Jesus has put that living water, is some of my most quiet times. I'm not, I'm not asking God for anything. I'm being with him. I'm asking Jesus to show me, Jesus, would you show me your love? Put, put deep in me your love, a sense of how you love me so that I can love others. Descend out of the distraction of the shallows. Confront your burdens and cares in the midlands and sink into the depths where there is living water, the purest water. And as you linger there, you drink your fill and you're completely refreshed and satisfied. We said it's cheaper, easier, and quicker for you to put in a well point and not a deep borehole. But in order for you to invest in your spiritual life and your faith, it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you time and discipline. Read the scriptures? Yes, we must. Pray? Yes, we must. But 10 minutes a day, it's not really helping you. 30 minutes a day is not really helping you. To be honest, an hour a day is not really helping you. You need to find times where you can linger out of the shallows, out of the midlands, in the depths of your being. Give yourself time and space. Jesus says, when you see all of these things happening, take comfort, don't panic, remain in me. Friends, we must increase in love. We must abide in Jesus and stand firm. The writer to Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19, he says that our faith is anchored by Jesus. So if, you go, if your faith is going to be anchored, make sure that it's anchored deep. A shallow anchor is not, not really helpful. To be honest, a Midlands anchor is not really helpful either. If your faith is going to be anchored, make sure that it's anchored in the depths of who you are, where the Holy Spirit lives. Deep within our being, so that we can refresh not only ourselves, but that others can drink from our lives. In fact, Jesus says in the scriptures that this water is for the healing of the nations, this living water. Allow it to refresh you so that you can refresh others and that your faith can be resilient. Can you stand with me, please, friends?